All right, well, I hope you've come to receive the word. I hope you're hungry. I hope that even in this time of worship, that as your heart has been made open to what God's doing, that you are ready to be changed, transformed, made more like Jesus. Because if you're not, I'm going to get louder, more passionate until you are. Amen. <laughs> Great. Okay. There's, a, there's only one rule in this house, and that's that if you go quiet, I preach longer. <laughs> All right. Anyway, we've been in a series called God Encounters, and um, the last couple of weeks we've been leaning into the God of the Bible. And here's the, the simple summary of where we are. God always makes first contact. It doesn't matter. You can go Old Testament, New Testament. You can go uh, before the law, in the law, after the law. God always makes first contact. Why? He is wildly and passionately in love with you. So we've looked at Moses. We've looked at the woman in, uh, at the well. Uh, we've looked at the, the thief on the cross next to Jesus. We've looked at the adulterous woman, who they say the adulterous woman, but actually she's just the exposed woman because Jesus said we were all adulterers if we've looked at anyone with lust. Um, side note. But the beauty of Jesus is this. He's always making first contact. He's always reaching for you. He's always looking for you. He desires you. He's in love with you. He never stops pursuing you. And so we need to make sure that as the people of God, we are lit up with a revelation of who we worship. He is not the God who's hiding himself waiting for you to find him. He's the God who always makes first contact. He's always reaching. He's always looking for you. And all he's expecting is your yes. All he's expecting, all he requires is your yielded response to his perfect love. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to tick the boxes. The boxes have been ticked. Jesus did it all. Amen? So you need to make sure that that's the foundation that you're going to hear what I'm going to preach on today because I'm going to lean in. Last week... I really, uh, I went after some stuff, especially in the, under the context of grace, and, uh, and I, I understand that um, that message, the purity and the potency of the gospel of grace ruffles some feathers, and that's okay. Um, and I, I, today I want to do a, a thorough, the best possible job I could do to communicate what the grace of God actually does in us, through us, and to the church, because Sometimes it sounds like we preach the grace of God and what we're saying is it's okay to just stay the same. Everything's just fine. Thank God he loves us and we just move on from there. We, here's the thing. Yes. But it's not the fullness. In other words, you stay there. God's grace is so wild. He gets you here and he'll hold you and he loves you. Nothing changes about who God is even if you stay in this place. Even if you do nothing with the gospel, he's wildly in love with you. But what person wants to receive the fullness of the gospel and stay here. Because the reality is this. He didn't just save me from something. He saved me into something. What does he save me into? He's filled me with his spirit, the dunamis power of God, because not only am I created to know him, but he wants to do things in me, through me, and he wants to co-labor with me. So there's a dream, a mandate, and a story of God that he's telling through every single one of us. Why would I want to stay here? Well, thank God he saved me. Grateful for his grace, now I can just do whatever the heck I want. It makes no sense. The only people who stay here are people who don't know who they worship. Amen. Okay, God encounters. Today's topic, the God of grace. And I'm going to lean into this and just say we need to know who we are. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw a punchline at you real quick and then I'm going to unpack it. Is that okay? Because the biggest thing, what people say to me is like, you're so light on sin. And I'm going, no, I'm not light on sin. I'm very heavy on it. So heavy that it cost Jesus everything, his whole life. He had to die and take your place. And he was raised from the dead. It's the most insane, crazy story. That's what sin required. 
So I'm not light on sin. I'm extremely heavy on sin. I'm as heavy as God is. But as I said last week, I'm not going to put the emphasis on something that he took the emphasis off. Amen? So here's the statement. Before you form your theology around sin, do you have a biblical theology for who God is and what he's like? I'll say that again. Before you form your theology around sin, have you first formed your theology biblically around who God is and what he's like? Because if we have a a theology around sin without understanding who God is and what he's like, we're going to get stuck here because this demands the law. The only people who want to live under the law are people who don't know God. The law is not something you want to live under. The reason why God gave us the law was not to see how well you could reach the standard. It was to show you that you never will. It was to show you that you are desperately in need of Jesus. You need the Spirit of God in you, otherwise it's not happening. And if you need proof and evidence, you got a whole Bible full of stories of people realizing again and again and again, we can't do it. So I want to say today, we're going to dive into a theology of who God is what he's like, to make sure we actually believe the pure and potent gospel that he uh, came to to bring to our hearts and our lives. That's the gospel that changes us. That's the gospel that changes cities and regions and nations. And if we don't understand this gospel, we're going to live here grateful that we were saved from something, but never seeing the fullness of what we were saved into. And that's not your portion. You are made for the fullness of his kingdom. You are made for the fullness of God. Amen? Amen? Okay. So, let's go real quick, Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to go right to the origin of sin. Is that good? It's pretty good for us to go to the first, the beginning of something, to understand how it works and what it is. Okay, so just to give you some context, God's created man, he's put them in a garden in a region called Eden, and this is a place where God walks with man externally together in the garden Adam and Eve walked with God. They knew God. They they were made in His image. We see that that God said to them, He's made them in His his image. They're good. Um, And so they've given this instruction. The instruction is this. You can eat of every single tree except one. And this one tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Listen to those words, because sometimes we get so used to the story, we forget what we're talking about. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's you knowing right and wrong for yourself. You being the judge for what's right and wrong. Here's the thing, you weren't made for that. It's why you're not supposed to eat from that tree. But it's an interesting thing that happens. So, the devil comes, the serpent. It's not, uh, maybe I shouldn't do this. I don't think he was a snake. I think you need more faith to believe he was a snake than you do to just study the word and realize serpent and the word shining one mean the same thing. And so I think he was an angel in the because it makes more sense to me that Adam and Eve knew how to talk to angels than they did to a snake. Anyway, that's just for free. I'll teach that another time. Some of you are like, your whole childhood just exploded in front of you. Anyway, um, so the, the devil comes to them and says this. He's the, he's the accuser. He's the deceiver. He comes and he says, um, hey, eat of this tree. They go, no, God said, don't eat of the tree. Uh, this, I'm just paraphrasing. I'm going to read a section now. And basically, um, he says, hey, no, God knows that if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him. You'll know what's right and wrong. You'll be able to do what God does. You'll be like him. Here's the interesting thing. They were already like him. 
They were already made in his image. And the enemy comes and goes, no, if you do this, you'll be like him. Okay? How many of you know it wasn't in the fruit? It was, a, it was an action, a faith action, that unlocks something. It was man's attempt at self-sufficiency. I believe the tree of life and the tree of the, the knowledge of good and evil are, are two, just two choices. The all-sufficiency of Jesus or self-sufficiency, which fails every time. So the, the devil deceives Eve and then Adam to try to do it themselves. And so they, they eat of this tree. And this is what's so interesting. For the first time, because they knew that they'd seen their bodies before, right? They, it wasn't like they never saw themselves and didn't. It's just that they knew they were naked. Nothing had changed other than here how they saw themselves. Okay? Do you see that? Nothing changed except for how they saw themselves. Okay, listen to this. Verse 7, then the eyes of the two of them were opened, that is their awareness was increased, and they knew that they were naked. And they fastened fig leaves, fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Pause. They just sinned. They're, they're seeing themselves differently. They're immediately feeling vulnerable and exposed and trying to cover themselves. And here's the beautiful thing. God came. It wasn't like you sinned and God was like, now I have to send a letter via the post because I can't actually be around you. No, he still came and walked just like he did every other day. That's in the beginning, just saying. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, the cool, of the breeze, uh, cool afternoon breeze of the day. So the man and his wife, listen to this, hid and kept themselves hidden from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? <laughs> he said, I heard the sound of you. This is Adam. I heard the sound of you, God, walking in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. I want to just highlight a few things. God comes walking like he does every single day to be with them. They have sinned, tried to do something in their own strength. They see themselves differently. They're hiding from God, and God asks a question. I want you to see something in this question. God was not concerned with Adam and Eve's mistake. He was concerned about their proximity to him. He asked a question. He didn't come and say, Adam, what did you do? That's how we hear the story. Adam, what did you do, buddy? No, God came and he said, where are you? Do you think God didn't know where they were? No, what was God highlighting? He's saying, you've pulled away from me. You see yourself differently and you've pulled away from me. And Adam says three things. Adam explains himself to God. When God says, where are you? Adam says, I heard you coming. Now think about this. He heard him coming every day. They used to walk together in the garden. I heard you coming, but this time was different. Three things, Adam says. He says, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was, number one, afraid. Fear. I was afraid because I was naked. Shame. So I hid myself. This is the effects of sin in our life. Fear, shame, and hiddenness. God said this. I love this. Who told you you were naked? I don't know if you've noticed. God's still not nailing them for what they did wrong. He's concerned with how they're seeing. 
Adam's going, I'm ashamed, I'm naked, I'm exposed. And God says, who told you that? I've walked with you every day in the garden. Have I ever said that to you? Have I ever said that your nakedness is disgusting to me? No, I haven't. I made you that way. I've been walking with you. Who told you you were naked? Who has put something in your mind and in your heart that's caused you to pull away from me? Are you seeing the heart of God? Then he says, have you eaten the fruit from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And suddenly the blame game starts and you see sin, what it does to humans, what it does to relationships. Blame, accuse, division, and then we know the story. They get removed from the garden. But here's the beautiful thing. They got removed from the garden. God knew this was going to happen all along. He was introducing his story. Eden was the beginning uh, introduction to the Garden of Eden was not God's master plan. It was his introduction to the story of God. He was not intimidated by what had happened. He knew it was going to happen. He had a plan. He put it into place. When they were removed from the garden, God did not leave them. What they lost was what God intended man to live in, which was the righteousness of God. Hello? But God didn't go, you're out the garden, good luck, Let's, I'll see you in a couple years when I decide to send Jesus. And I want to ask you this question. What do you think Adam used to tell his children about God? Because Adam and Eve lived a long time, and they'd been in the garden, seen things, experienced things. When they were removed from the garden, they didn't forget. They were teaching their children the ways of God because they'd experienced Him. How do you get people like Noah and these who, who understood something about the heart of God? See, Adam did not look back at his time in the garden and go, God is a very horrible, mean God who just was so harsh on me and just kicked me out. The no, he understood that God desired to walk with him and Adam realized he made the wrong choice. You get it? So we see this is the introduction to sin. I don't know if you're, if you're seeing or at least starting to get a, a feel for the fact that God didn't seem so caught up in the action of eating the fruit. He only asked him about it once, but he kept highlighting, why do you think you're naked? Where are you? Why have you distanced yourself from me? Can you see God's heart? God's desire is to walk with us and to be with us. Amen? So what is sin? Sin is unbelief in the finished work of God. It was unbelief in his work then, and it's unbelief in his work now. That's what sin is. In fact, William Branham says something very bold. He says the things we call sin are just the fruits of one sin, unbelief. So we like to rank sin. We like to decide this one's worse because the consequences relationally are worse. So that sin is terrible. This one's kind of okay because people aren't affected by it that much. And then the white lies all the way over here. And that one's kind of everyone does that. It's okay. But they're all fruits of the same thing. Unbelief in the finished work of God, right? Sin is what happens when we do it ourselves. Sin is what our efforts produce. If sin is what our efforts produce, why would we want to live under the law which has a responsibility and a job to expose sin? Are you seeing this? There's no ways we were made for the law. If we were made for the law, why didn't he give it to us in the beginning? He didn't give us the law until the Israelites said, we don't want to go up into his glory. Let's send Moses. You come back, tell us what God wants. We'll do it. If God wanted people to try to be like him, he would have given the law in the garden. But he didn't do that. He made us like him. He said, 
What I've said about you is all that matters. Walk in it. Okay. Amen. So God's efforts produce righteousness. Our efforts produce sin. Simple, right? Can I say it like this? Sin is the evidence of self-righteousness. Because self-righteousness actually isn't righteousness. In fact, self-righteousness doesn't exist. It's, our, it's what we think. It's our attempt at something. But there's no substance there. You'll never reach it. You will never be righteous through yourself. Never. Amen? Are you with me? Stay with me. We're going somewhere. Okay. So here's the thing. What did Adam and Eve experience in the garden? They experienced shame. And here's the thing about shame. Shame says what you have done is who you are. Shame says what you have done is who you are. Shame makes you identify with your mistake. This is so real for so many of us. And it produces the same thing over and over again, fear. It produces the fear of punishment, and it causes us to pretend. Shame causes us to pretend. See, instead of journeying into Jesus' fullness... Shame makes us pretend that there's a better version of ourselves. We just didn't meet the standard. If I'd done it differently, I, I would have done it right. That's what shame leaves you feeling. Shame leaves you feeling that you have this regret, and I'm going to talk about regret in a second. Shame leaves you with regret for something because you thought, well, if I'd done it differently, I would have done it better. Thinking that somewhere in your makeup, you actually could have got it right. Shame makes you believe you're a person that doesn't exist. Okay, I said like this, God only acknowledges your true identity. Hear me, hear me. God only acknowledges your true identity. What you think you are outside of what he's done for you doesn't exist. It's a lie in your head. You think it's real. He never acknowledges it. He's done something on the cross that he said is finished, died and raised. You were with him, died with him, raised with him. That's the only identity that you have as a believer that God acknowledges. When you feel like you're outside of that, that's just you. He's not even, he doesn't even acknowledge it. You're playing in a realm that doesn't exist to God. This is the gospel. <laughs> okay. I want to just talk about regret for a second. So shame, guilt, shame, and condemnation produces regret. Regret assumes that there's a better version of you that could have done it better, and it's a lie. This is what regret is. Regret is I'm looking back, I regret something, because somewhere in me I'm like, if I'd just done it differently, it would have been better. So I regret the way I did something. Regret is the opposite of reconciliation. Because regret doesn't leave you any different to who you were. You just hope that there's a better version of you that could have done better. But you're still the same person. You're deceiving yourself to think that I would have done it better if I'd done it differently. This is the lie that, that we get all I mean, the world is full of this. It's constantly like, well, learn. You know, history teaches us learn from your mistakes and do better. But we're not doing that. 
globally, we can look at history and go, man, we have a lot of regrets, yet I'm seeing the same cycle and the same pattern because we think, no, we're going to do it better this time. No, we won't. And the only difference is that we're, because we're ranking sin and measuring sin, we actually think that there's some sort of difference. And because I didn't make the same mistake as last time, this sin is slightly less than that one, so I'm definitely getting better. I have, I've ranked my sins from, from worst to best, and because I'm not doing the, the really bad ones anymore, I'm t- now I just kick the dog. Now I just scream at my wife. But at least I'm getting better. No, it's all the same. <laughs> okay, why am I saying this? Because this, this thinking, this, this version of the gospel, which is not the gospel at all that we are teaching, preaching, and living, where it's still this do better, deal with your hidden secret sin, deal with all this. Which ones? Like... Can we just, if we're going to go there, can we just once and for all today, and you need to send this recording to everybody that's not here and everyone you know, okay? Because let's just do it once and for all. Let's just nail this thing, finish it. If it's our job to deal with secret hidden sin, which ones? Because here's the thing, that which is not of faith is sin. So every day, make sure you keep that, your sin book with you and keep track of every time you weren't in faith that day. Because you, that sin, you're not in faith, same sin as the murderer, To God, it's no different. The difference on earth is how it affects people relationally. So there's relational consequences to our actions to each other. But before God, he's saying, hey, white lie, murderer, hell. So we need him. So so I don't think, and I'm not, I don't think, I know, definitely, 100% in your Bible, God not asking you to deal with your secret sin. There's a scripture in 1 John, if you confess your sins, you know, confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. So we take that, we go, you have to confess every sin. So now your prayer time before bed, you need to go back and go, okay, I woke up at seven. What was my first thought? Actually, I was a bit cranky and I think I swore at my wife or I think I said this or I think I kicked the dog. And then, no, when I was driving, are you serious? So now every night, you need to keep track and go back and confess every sin, every single sin, every single sin. You don't get to just do some, the ones that matter to you. All of them. If that's the theology that you want to believe, I'm so sorry for you because it's not biblical and that passage of scripture is talking about unbelief. When you, when you confess your unbelief, God, this is a, that's the point of salvation. I, God, I have not believed in you, now I believe. I'm confessing with my mouth, believing in my heart. I'm saved. Uh, okay, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting this thing because if we can deal with this war in our hearts and minds around how to deal with sin, then we're going to step into a level and a realm of victory as the church that will transform us and take us into true kingdom power. The church is still wrestling here, just trying to get free from what they're stuck in. And again, putting the emphasis on something that Jesus took the emphasis off of. There's this word going around, and I'm going to be very careful how I say this, but I, I know there's some global stuff going on right now, leaders who've made mistakes, and the, I am heartbroken at how things are being handled in the church. 
that globally we think we have a right to have a voice into some of this stuff. But I want to say this. We, we use this word, I don't like it, and I'm going to smack it today. Is that okay? It's, we use this word, due process. Due process. When there's sin, there needs to be due process. Okay, amen, let's go there. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? Death. So let me tell you what due process for sin is. Death. You want to do due, pro due process? You want to do the process, go through the full process of what sin demands? Death. Death. So here's the thing. Jesus comes. He introduces the kingdom. Here's the beautiful thing. He goes, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom. And they go, okay, but how do we pray in your kingdom? And he says this, Father. And for the first time in the history of that nation, they hear, we're, we're allowed to call God Father. So Jesus comes with this upside down concept of a kingdom, which is like, you're coming into my kingdom. I want to teach you how to pray. The king is Father. And then he, he deals with people like the woman at the well, like the adulterous woman in John 8, and he doesn't follow due process. Because the, the Pharisees throw the woman on the ground, they come with their stones and they say, due process says this, stone her. And Jesus goes, firstly, I'm going to take the emphasis off of her and put it on me. I'm going to do something weird and start drawing in the sand. Now they're not looking at her, they're looking at him. So Jesus is already showing you his first action is this. Take the emphasis off of sin, put it on me. And then he writes in the sand. We don't know what he writes in the sand, and it's not our job to know. But he wrote something in the sand. And then he says, okay, let's follow due process. First one without sin. Never, if you've never made a mistake in your life, throw the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they go, shucks. And the stones begin to drop. And then this is Jesus' due process. Who condemns you? She goes, no one, Lord. Go sin no more. Done. Let's move. Let's carry on with the kingdom. Can you see how Jesus deals with sin? It's like he's looking at the church. He's going, look at me. But Jesus, can't you see how broken this? Can't you see this? Can't you see the mess? We need to follow due process and deal with this stuff. And Jesus is saying, look at me. And just follow me. I know there's questions popping up. I'm going to answer them. Stay with me. The due process that sin requires is death. Romans 6.23. Sin only has one process. Death and punishment. Why else would God have to send his son? Can someone get me some water, please? <clears throat> so here's the thing. The news has to be really bad without Jesus. So that when we have Jesus, it's actually the gospel, good news. Right? It can't be good news if it wasn't so bad before him. Amen? And I think the problem is the church has lost the goodness of the news that we've received because we don't think it was that bad before him anyway. Now I'm kind of a good person. I was kind of doing okay. It's just good. Jesus made things a bit better. And I'm not as bad as others. Have you seen the mess in this world? No, I'm okay. I haven't done those things. It's nonsense, and it's not the gospel. You're all in need of Jesus. I need him, you need him, we need him. Thank you. We need Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the gospel is good news. Why is it good news? Because under the law, I need good news. I'm doomed under the law. 
I'm eternally separated from God. And here's the beauty of Jesus. Jesus, on the cross, cries out to the Father. He says, why have you forsaken me? Why? This is really profound. Jesus had to take upon himself separation from God so that you never would experience that. God separated himself from Jesus so that never, ever, 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 ever in all of eternity will you be separated from him. Ever. So why would we run away from him? If Jesus took it upon himself and he's going, I've been separated. I, to, I cried out, God, why have you forsaken me? So that you will never say those words out of your mouth. Now when you're stuck and there's trouble or there's pain or there's sin or there's mistakes, where do you run? If, he's, if he hasn't left you, if he's not intimidated by your sin or your mess, you run to him. <laughs> Sorry. Tell you why I'm passionate. I need this. I need this. You need this. We need this. I'm not preaching this like I got this all figured out. I'm preaching this because I'm screaming at my own soul. I'm going, do you get the gospel? This is Jesus. We need him. <laughs> Jesus fulfilled due process. Jesus fulfilled due process. So... My dear friend, Randy Martinez, he'll be here in, he's, he leads Maps Global. He'll be here in March. He's coming to spend a week with us. We're going to do a 1040 conference. Um, oh, it's going to be wild, so that's going to be great. But he said something. Some of you might have seen it. He asked this beautiful question, and I'm going to ask it to us this morning. Is the cross enough? Is the death of Jesus sufficient for us? Can I, can, I, can I be so bold as to say this? It's the only question that matters. It's the only question that matters. Is the cross sufficient? Is the death and resurrection of Jesus enough? And if it's not, then, then we, <laughs> we're done. <clears throat> Did he actually finish it? Let's get real with ourselves and go, do I believe that gospel? Do I believe the gospel where Jesus said it's finished? Or do I believe a gospel that's like, he said it's finished? I'm not quite sure what he meant by that. Are you guys okay? Do I, should I tone it down a little bit? I will, if, you, if it's better, <laughs> I want you to receive what I'm saying. If it's coming through in the package you don't like, I'm sorry, I can change that. But you need to hear what I'm saying this morning. This is the gospel that sets us free. This is the gospel that changes everything. And we're going to get to what this means for your heart, and then we're going to get to what it means for a community. Amen? Um, okay, 2 Corinthians 5.17. You guys know this. We're going to read all the way down to verse 21. I'm just going to dive into it. You can catch up, okay? Out of the Amplified. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ that is grafted in and joined to him by faith in him as Savior, he is a new creation, reborn and renewed by the Holy Spirit. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come because spiritual awakening brings new life. But all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ, making us acceptable to him, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, but canceling them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. 
That is restoration to favor with God. So we are ambassadors for Christ. This is Paul. He's crying out. He's like, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us. We plead with you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. Because he made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. So that in him we would become the righteousness of God. That is, we would be made acceptable to him and placed in right relationship with him by his gracious, loving kindness. Be reconciled to God. Okay, I want to say this. While, you, while I'm saying this, you can quickly jump to Colossians. We're going to go there next. Man wants to change situations. You need to hear me. Man wants to change situations. God wants to change hearts. Think about this for a second. Situations are temporary. They don't last. Your heart is eternal. You are going to go through many situations, trials, tribulations, pressure, circumstance, good times, abundance, lack, whatever. You name it. We live in a fallen, broken world. Situation is coming your way. Circumstance is coming your way. And God can work wonders in the midst of situation and circumstance, but he's after your heart. Man wants to change situations and circumstances. God wants to change hearts. Colossians 1, verse 21 to 23. Listen to this. And although you were at one time estranged and alienated and hostile-minded toward him, participating in evil things, yet Christ has now reconciled you to God in his physical body through death in order to present you before the Father... Holy, blameless, and beyond reproach, if you continue in the faith, well-grounded and steadfast, and not shifting away from the hope that is a result of the gospel that you've heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which gospel I, Paul, was made a minister. So this is how most people read it. Jesus wants to present me before, he's, he's reconciled me, he presents me before the Father, holy, blameless, and above reproach, if I continue in the faith. And that's how it's taught. That's true, but there's more to the scripture because he says he's reconciled you through his physical body through death, meaning his death was enough to reconcile you to God. His death was enough to reconcile you to God. And this happened in order to present you before who? Father. Okay? Present you before the Father, holy, blameless, beyond reproach. That's wild. That's insane. You're blameless before the Father right now. You are blameless before the Father right now. You. And then he says this. If you continue in the faith, well-grounded and steadfast, meaning not moving from believing one thing, not shifting away from the hope that's the result of the gospel that Paul preached. It doesn't stop at, well, if you just continue in the faith. In other words, as soon as you come out of faith, you lose the whole holy, blameless, above approach thing. That's how we read it. No, he's saying, if you continue, if you believe and don't shift away or move from the gospel that I preached, which is this, you're, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. <laughs> if you believe it, you have it. 
That's the heart of God for you. It started with Abraham before the law was even given. Galatians, I think it's Galatians or Romans, Galatians says, Abraham believed and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed what God said about him and God said, you're my friend. Why is it hard for us to read these scriptures and go, oh, that's how it works? Believe, receive, become. Are you with me? I'm going to smile more because it's really good news. I just get intense because I'm trying to communicate. But it's really good news. This should stir joy in our hearts to go, Lord, this is incredible. This is a reason to live. This is a reason to live. Colossians 2:13 When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh God made you alive together with Christ Okay sorry pause Not after not when you finally realized and came to your senses when you were dead <laughs> in your sin and uncircumcision of your flesh In it God made you alive together with Christ, having freely forgiven us. Someone say all. That's not some. All. In the Greek, it's still all. It's all. Having forgiven us all our sins, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of legal demands. So the legal demands, the due process of sin, he canceled it. The due process of sin, what you deserve because of your sin, he canceled it and he nailed it to the cross once and for all. (laughs) I love this. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of legal demands that were against us, which were hostile to us. Don't you want to live under the law? It's hostile to you. The legal demands of the due process of sin, it will kill you. And it's crippling the church. We want to live here because we think it's, it's, it's this pious thing. It's not. It's ugly, it's horrible, and it's killing us. And we've got to stop. <clears throat> this part I really love. So he removed the legal demands, and then he says this, and this certificate he set aside, and he completely removed it by nailing it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities... <laughs> Those supernatural forces of evil operating against us. He disarmed them. (laughs) And he made a public example of them. (laughs) I love this. Exhibiting them as captives in his triumphal procession. Having triumphed over them through the the cross. I like to call it Armageddon. (laughs) Sorry. I feel... I feel very cheeky. I'm so sorry. It's passion. See, this gospel makes me want to throw my life at the feet of Jesus. I haven't even had water. You okay? Nearly there. Galatians chapter 2. Verse 19 to 21. Listen to this. For through the law, (laughs) I died to the law and its demands on me. 
For through the law, I died to the law and its demands on me because salvation is provided through the death and resurrection of Christ. You all need Amplified Bibles, okay? (laughs) So that I might, listen to this, so that I might from now on live to God. I don't know if you just see that. If you live under the law, you are not living to God. Does that mean the law is bad? No. It's holy and its purpose was to reveal your need for Jesus. But you will never live unto God until you're set free from the law, filled with the spirit and newness of life to be who God's called you to be. Amen. Amen. <laughs> so, so I died to the law and its demands on me because salvation doesn't come from the law. It comes from Christ. So that I might now, from now on live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That is, in Him, I've shared His crucifixion. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in my body, I live by faith. By adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. I do not ignore or nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In other words, his suffering and death would have had no purpose whatsoever. If we believe we're called to live under the law, you are saying Jesus is not the Messiah. Okay, a nice verse. (laughs) Psalm 23. Let's sing a song. Psalm 23, a nice, cute, it's not cute, it's fiery. Psalm 23, it's in Psalm 23. David is crying out. David caught something, he saw something. Listen to this, verse six, you all know it. Surely what? Goodness and mercy and unfailing love shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell forever throughout all my days in the house and in the presence of the Lord. David's going, I'm seeing the nature of God. He's describing Psalm 23. He's going, man, you're my shepherd. I don't want you. You you cause me to rest in green pastures beside still waters. You refresh and restore my soul. You lead me in paths of righteousness. Even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I go through pain and hardship, even though I make mistakes, even though I go through death, I fear no evil for you with me. In other words, you didn't change my situation and circumstance, but you changed me. See, your rod, which is to protect, not to punish. The rod's not for you. It's for the wolves. Okay. Bad shepherds hit their sheep with rods. South African shepherds, from the back. That's not the shepherd we follow. The rod's not for the sheep. It's to protect the sheep. We read that, we go, the discipline and punishment of the Lord is there to comfort and console me. (laughs) Come on. Can you see how, we we need the mind of Christ. We need him to touch our minds. We read these things and we're going, we're understanding it wrong. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry. you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies oh my word so what you're saying is you're not going to take me out of the presence of my enemies 
Instead, you're going to prepare a table in the presence of my enemies for me. Because what happens at the table, that's where I discover who he is. Oh, Jesus. Then he says this. <laughs> so you, you prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed and refreshed my head with oil. The anointing is not there to expose your sin. I don't care what man of God, what woman of God teaches that. It's not in your Bible. The anointing does not come to expose sin. If you've heard teachings, the anointing comes on you. And when the anointing comes on you, it's going to bring up every weakness in your life. And God's going to have to deal with that. Woe to you. That's called legalism. It's a painful place to be. You don't want to be there. The, you know what the anointing is? It's the nature of Jesus. If the anointing is on you, guess what people experience? Christ, the anointed one. The anointed one. So that's why he can say, you refreshed my head with oil. Your anointing has refreshed my head with oil. And then it says, my cup overflows. He's still in the presence of his enemies. <laughs> uh, and then he says that, surely goodness, mercy, and unfailing love will follow me all the days of my life. In other words, when I look behind me, when I look into my past, all the Father wants you to see, all he says or speaks of your life to see, is goodness, mercy, and unfailing love. And because of that, it gives you confidence to say this, I shall dwell, I will dwell forever, throughout all my days, in the house and in the presence of the Lord. I can come into the habitation of his house because when I look back, surely goodness, mercy, and unfailing love follow me all the days of my life. Why? He did it. It's finished. Okay, so let's get practical. How do we navigate the relational consequences of sin for our own hearts? What am I talking about? Hurt, offense, trauma, pain. When people sin, when there's brokenness in people's lives, in all of us, it affects others. Some don't, some do. But when it does, there's relational consequences to the mistakes that we make. We all experience this, right? And just because we measure one as less than the other doesn't mean it's less. It's just the way you think about it. But it's all consequences. So how do we navigate that as the church? Because this is the question I get asked. And this is the disconnect between when we preach the grace of God and then we go, okay, now how do we handle it when I'm really offended and hurt and don't want to... You understand? It's like when there's, when there's pain or when there's offense or when there's, there's relational tension in the church or in, in families or whatever it is, how do I deal with that? And I've been pressing into this with the Lord saying, God, we need to communicate this well because the grace of God is not just something that's positional. It's experiential. So how do we navigate this? Hurt, offense, trauma, pain, all those things. There's three things I want to highlight. It's not all of them, but these are three things that I think, if we'll just catch these things, there are tools that help us live this out. Amen? Because that's our desire. If you have a desire to nail people, something's wrong. And I shouldn't say if. We all have that desire sometimes. We all have a desire to that person. Because their sin is a million times worse than mine. And I know the feeling. We all know the feeling. Now here's the thing. The moment we do that, we're going into self-righteousness again. And we need to just repent, change the way we think, and say, Jesus, I need 
goodness, mercy, and unfailing love. I need to look back and see that. So does everybody else. Help me to have your heart and mind. Amen. So three things. How do we navigate relational consequences of sin in the church? But let's, this is for you first, just for your heart. Number one, be reconciled to God. What does that mean? Let Him heal you. In other words, when you're in a situation with, where there's pain, hurt, brokenness, whatever it is, whether you made the mistake or a mistake or something was done to you, this is the reality of it. Run to Jesus. Be reconciled to God. Stop everything else. Pause everything else. Get with Him. Let Him heal you. Let Him hold you. And let Him give you His heart and His eyes. I'm going to say it like this. Do not move from that place, the secret place with you and Him, until you identify with Him and not your pain. Don't do anything. Don't do any. Don't think you know what to do. Don't follow due process till you've been reconciled. Because you're going to make a mistake and mess it up and make it worse. Be reconciled. Go to Him. Run to Him. Lord, heal me. Hold me. Give me your heart. Give me your eyes until I identify with you and not with my pain. Does this make sense? So that's number one, be reconciled to God. Number two, forgive as you've been forgiven, Ephesians 4.32. Forgiveness keeps your heart free so that you can walk in your destiny. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, two and three are linked, okay? Here's the thing. So forgive as you've been forgiven, which means the measure to which I've been forgiven. How much have you been forgiven? Hell and eternity with God. It's, it's a lot. So the measure to which I've been forgiven, Jesus, thank you that your supernatural love inside of me, the goodness and the mercy and the unfailing love that follows me, it also cascades into my life and through me. So that I can forgive just as I've been forgiven. Number three, guard your heart. And I'll tell you why. So just, I hope you're following me. How do we navigate relational consequences of sin in our lives, other people's lives, in the church, in work, in our community, wherever it is, how do we navigate this? Number one, be reconciled to God so that you have His heart, His perspective. You're with Him. You identify with Him, His nature, not your pain, not your own opinion. Don't move until you have that. Stay with Him there. God's not in a rush. Number two, forgive as you've been forgiven. And then number three, guard your heart. This is what I mean. You are not responsible for others' reactions, others' actions, or their heart posture. You are only responsible for your own. Are you okay? That one landed interestingly. Not everyone chooses the gospel way. But you must choose for your own heart. We need to be careful that we are not walking around thinking that what God's going to do is, God, you're going to change their heart so that I can be free. Lord.
We need to repent if that's how we've approached things. It's not the heart of the Father. You are not responsible for others' reactions or their actions or their heart posture. You are responsible for your own. And the reality is God does not look on the outside. He looks at the heart. Man looks on the outside. We know this. David, we see it. Man looks on the outside and thinks we can have an opinion about it because I can see something. But God sees the heart. So I want to, I'm, can I just pastor us as a community for a moment in this, even for my own soul? This is, this is the leadership and the shepherding of Jesus. Is that not everyone's going to choose the gospel way. Not everyone's going to choose to take the heart posture of, of Jesus. Especially unbelievers. We have to expect that unbelievers are not going to react and journey things like we do. And so if my freedom, if my heart's freedom is based on their response or reaction to something, I'll be stuck forever. But I'm not accountable or responsible for their heart, only for my own. And so let me say this, some of you are waiting for others to change in order for you to be free. And in some situations, it's not going to happen. Some of you are waiting for somebody else to do something, somebody else to make a decision, somebody else to feel a certain way so that you can be free. And, and I want to say to you, there are, okay, let me say like this. There are some people in your life you are hoping will ask you for forgiveness that never will. You're all going to face that. If our freedom is based on how other people react or respond to a situation of the gospel, our hearts will never be free. We have to forgive from here because of Jesus for the sake of our own destiny. Are you okay? Okay, I just want to follow this through. The reason we do that is because we are situation-based instead of presence-based. We are outcome-based instead of presence-based. So what happens is we go, I'm waiting for somebody else to catch this. I'm waiting for that person to change. I'm waiting for that person to ask me for forgiveness. Or I'm waiting for, or, or whatever it is, I'm waiting for somebody else's action and re response in order for my heart to be free. And it's because of this. I want the situation changed. And God's going, I want your heart. And your heart is not measured by what anybody else does. Your heart is measured by your response before Him. Can I say this? Maybe success to God is not the outcome you thought would happen. Maybe success to God is that everybody's hearts come to Him. If it's about situations and circumstances, we're always going to be living high to low, waiting for God to fix the circumstance before I actually feel favored by Him. I only feel the pleasure of God again when my situation is fixed. You know what's funny? Every single person in this room has things flashing through their head right now. Wow. And the reason is because this is a life thing. 
This is every day. This is real for every single one of us. Every single one of you, what I'm saying right now, it's hitting something in your heart. And I'm just, I'm, I want to be pastoral and say, this is not me going after your pain. That's not what I'm doing. This is me saying, we need the gospel. And I'm looking at how the church is reacting to brokenness right now. On a, on a mass level, not just one scenario. I know most people are thinking about one, but there's so many. And we've seen it over a period of years, and I'm going, something's wrong with this picture, guys. We need Jesus. See, when the situation or the circumstance doesn't get fixed or work out the way you thought it was going to work out, How do you move forward in God? How do you move forward when when there wasn't forgiveness or restoration or reconciliation or those things? How do you move forward? So many people are trapped and stuck in the pain of their past and in their situation and circumstance and things that they've had to journey because they didn't get to resolve something the way that they thought it needed to be resolved because it was situation and circumstantial instead of heart before the Lord. I had something happen to me when I was 15, 16 years old, went through the most horrific thing. Somebody harmed me and, and damaged my life. And I went 11 years without any closure or any fixing of that situation or, or restoration or reconciliation, 11 years of just learning how to walk into Jesus and go, I need, to, I need to know who you say that I am and help me change my heart and help me walk through things. And then suddenly 11 years later, there's a moment where that person asks for forgiveness. Well, I can forgive and I can also be forgiven. And, and there's this restoration without there ever having to be more situational circumstance attached to that. God's not expecting me to now go and be best buddies with that person. I don't, in fact, I probably don't have to speak to that person ever again. But my heart's free. So many people will take decades to get to a place of freedom because unless I have this moment with somebody else, their response, then I'll be free. And I'm just, I'm crying out to you today as a pastor and I'm saying, you don't have to wait that long. You don't have to journey life like that. You can be free so that you can become love. See, this is the beauty of Christianity. This is, this is the power of the gospel in a broken, messed up, dying world with broken, messed up humanity is that we will become love in the worst situations. The problem with the church is that we think the situation has to come right for me to become love. But the, the difference is that when we understand that it's not about anybody else, it's not about situation or circumstance, it's about my heart before the Lord, then I can be free to walk with Him and see the evidence of Jesus in my life. Okay, the gospel is less about changing your situation and more about changing you. I'm not saying God doesn't change situations and circumstances. 
We see the power of God at work. We see signs, wonders, miracles. We see God do things in our lives. It's just amazing. It's incredible. We go, God, thank you that your, your heart for us is that you, you want the best for us. God wants the best for us. But the emphasis is not to change your situation. Most of us as Christians want God to change our situation, but we won't let him change our heart. And this is what happens. Those people who want the situation changed but their heart not changed, they like the message of grace part one. They like it because it means, thank God that I'm saved. God loves me no matter what, but I'm not moving from this place. I'm never moving from here because I don't want to change. I don't want to go on that journey. I just want to stay here and do what I want. And so that's why you've got people who can say all the stuff and have the language and do the things, but they never walk the journey of letting their heart be changed and transformed by the love of God. And there's nothing attractive about that. Right? The beauty is that Jesus is still here and he is not letting those people go. He loves them. But that's not how we demonstrate his heart on the earth. Amen? I'm nearly done, guys. Just sorry. Stick with me. I'm, I'm right there. This is so important. Is everyone okay? If you need to get up and go, it's okay. I think this is important for me to communicate. Everyone okay? Your faces are very serious. I love you. You're in the house of God. You are safe. God loves you so much. Okay. When Christ is lived out through your life, you become love even in the worst situations. So how do we respond to ourselves when we make mistakes? How do we respond to ourselves? Number one, run to the cross. (laughs) Number two. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. Humor disarms people. That was the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Run to the cross. Receive the fullness of Christ. And this one's really important. Identify with his death and resurrection. How do we respond to ourselves when we make mistakes? Identify with his death and resurrection. Do not identify with your mistake. That's death. Choose, this is so powerful, I'm going to touch on this for a second. Choose to see God's story in you, the narrative of redemption in the midst of your mistake. This is what it looks like. Thank you that you're going to use this for your glory. Thank you that this is not who I am. I know I made this mistake, but thank you that this is not who I am. Thank you that you're going to use this for your glory, and thank you that your story in my life is a story of redemption. That's the narrative I choose to believe. Not you royal stuff up, you just can't get it right. That's the narrative of hell. The narrative of Jesus is the story of redemption. You know, repentance doesn't mean regret what you did. Okay. Just think about that for a second. Repentance does not mean regret what you did. And I don't get to measure somebody else's repentance by how much I think they regret what they did. I don't get to measure your repentance by how much I think you regret what you did. 
And we can go forward, and when I really see that you seem really upset about what happened, what you did to me, when I see the regret in your eye, when I see that you actually really feel terrible about it, that's when I know something's really happened in your heart. It's not true. Because what we're saying then is, I, until you are bound by guilt, shame, and condemnation, I can't be free. Okay. So repentance means this. Change the way you think and believe. That's what repentance means. Change the way you think and believe. So in other words, this. I have a decision to make. Am I going to believe about myself what I think or what others think about me? Or am I going to believe about myself what the Father says? And the only place where transformation happens is when you believe what the Father says. Transformation doesn't happen here. Change doesn't happen here. You with me? Okay, I'm nearly there. Last couple things. Let's just talk about this as a community. How does a gospel-centered community respond to sin? This is, this is real. We just spoke about it personally. Now let's talk about it as a community. How does a gospel-centered community respond to sin? Well, <laughs> number one, lead people to the cross. There's only one place sin belongs. The cross. Lead people to the cross. This one's really important. This is the one I want people to hear. I had some questions last week around how I was communicating things. I need people to hear this. This is under the message of grace. This is the context of grace. We need to protect one another from the harm of deception or unbelief. As leaders, it's our responsibility. There's a different responsibility together. We protect each other from the harm of deception and unbelief. What does that mean? If somebody is not believing what the Father says about them or others, don't start following due process. You're just going to hurt each other. But we say it's due process. But you're hurting each other. You're biting each other. How is that God's heart? No, but it's, that's how we've got to do it. You follow due process. It's biblical. It's biblical process. No, let's talk biblical process. Let's wrestle with that. Let's really get into biblical process. Biblical process, according to God, God's heart is forgiveness, freedom, and reconciliation, and the redemption of God, the redemption of destinies. The problem with our due process in the church right now is we are killing people, crushing people, disqualifying people, wiping them out, all under this thing of, well, their sin is worse than mine. And yes, people sin. Sin hurts, man. It hurts us. It hurts others. But our job is to protect one another from the harm of deception or unbelief with the goal of seeing everyone restored. Can I tell you how you can measure where your heart's at? When you're in a situation where you've been hurt by others or you hurt someone else, but you actually like, I want them punished. I want them sorted out and dealt with and stuff them. <laughs> Yep, sorry, I said that from the pulpit. I repent. <laughs> but just think about this for a second. It's good. It's a good indication. We've all been there. God, why do I feel that way? I feel that way because I'm hurt. So what do I need to do? Back to step one, be reconciled to God. Lord, I need you. I need you to heal me. I need you to redeem me. I need you to make me whole. I need you to give me your heart and your eyes so that I can respond rightly. Okay. Nearly done. Next one. So 
protecting one another from the harm of deception or unbelief with the goal of seeing everyone restored. Next one, submit to the mind of Christ and his leadership. God, what do you think about this? And then above all, love one another. Love one another does not mean that just, you know, you, there, there are people who won't repent, who won't change, and who will continue to hurt you. And God's not saying, don't go be best friends with them and continue on that journey. He's saying, you get free in your heart so that you can love and forgive. And then you're free from that thing so that now you can walk in your destiny. Because this is where the law gets weird again. It's like, no, but now you, you need to be reconciled to that person. I'm like, yeah, that's amazing when that happens, but it doesn't always happen because you're not accountable for their heart. You're only accountable for yours. So your success in God is not based on if you fix the circumstance or situation. It's based on your heart. So this culture that I'm talking about in a community, when we do these things well, this is the grace of God. When we see the grace of God in our lives and in a community, this is what it produces. It's a culture that's, number one, safe. That should be in our, on our lips and in our language when we come into the family of God. I'm safe. If I'm not safe and I'm afraid, then we're under the wrong thing. We're under legalism again. This culture is safe. It's Jesus-focused. It's Jesus-focused. It's forgiving. It's shame-free. It's redemptive. And it's empowering. And my prayer this morning is I'm saying, Lord, this is what the grace of God does to the believer and to a community. See, what I'm touching on today, for my own heart, I know this, because when I was preparing it, I was just so offended with the Lord. And then you realize, you're like, God, if you can be that good to me, how can I not expect that you'd be that good to another? Hmm. So what do we do with this? Because what I just delivered here, and Lord, if there's anything I've said that's not in your heart, let it be forgotten. But that which is the gospel, what's been said in this room right now, what it's going to do is it's the potency of the gospel. It cuts right to your inner man. It cuts through all the noise, all the junk, all the stuff, and it gets right to your heart. And that's where God goes, I want your heart. I'm after your heart. I'm after you. And so now we respond to him and we say, okay, Jesus... I need the supernatural work of the gospel in my life. Because I want to tell you, you are not going to be able to forgive others without the supernatural love of God. Because you weren't forgiven without that supernatural love. And, and Romans 5.5 5 says that through the Holy Spirit, the love of God has been poured out into my heart. The love of God through the Holy Spirit is poured into my heart. So I can't do this without the supernatural power of God. And I have to, I'd rather live my life with an expectation in His power then on me doing the right thing. Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? Man, my pastor heart is like aching right now because I know this is so real for us. Every single one of us, we, we're dealing, journeying something, facing something in life where this is real. <laughs> 
where you can feel and you go, geez, okay, now what? And I'm saying this is good news. It's good news when you identify with who Jesus is instead of identifying with your pain or with your situation or with your circumstance. The message I just preached to you today, it's how you, it's how you shine in the midst of sickness. It's how you shine in the midst of pain and brokenness. It's how you shine in a failed marriage. It's how you shine when your business doesn't work out. It's how you radiate and shine the goodness of Jesus when everything around you seems to be falling apart. But you have Him. Your heart's free. And now you can begin to live out the gospel. And situations and circumstances, God begins to work wonders in those things, but my identity is not tied to that. I'm found in Him. So if I can just end with this and just say, like Paul pleading to us in the scriptures, saying, I, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. When we are reconciled to him, our hearts are liberated and free to, to be who we're called to be and to live out the dream of God in our lives. Amen. The grace of God is so wild, it's so incredible. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, and he, he became sin on your behalf. You died with him. And when he was raised out of the grave, you were raised with him. And as I said it earlier, I'm going to end with this and just say, God does not acknowledge any other identity than that one. He doesn't. When you walk out of this room today, that's what I want you to carry. Go back, please. Go back, listen to this, work through this, let God do it in your heart. But I want you to walk out of the room today knowing God does not acknowledge any other identity other than who He says I am in Christ. That is liberating. It sets your heart free. It's the only thing that will bring freedom. Every single one of you, hear me this morning, every single one of you in this room are called, set apart, and chosen by God to fly to dream with Him, to run with Him. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that everything goes according to plan, our plans. But we live for Him. We live for His dream. It's a story of redemption. God is passionate about your destiny as a son and as a daughter. We need to let the gospel do its work in our hearts so that we can run and be free. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me this morning? I think it's Bill Johnson who says sometimes the gospel is like God standing up front with a sword directed at you and he says, come. And you walk into the sword and it's like, oh, it cuts right to the heart. It cuts through everything. But I promise you it brings freedom because his heart is for you. He's so passionately in love with us. If what I've said to you today, if you are feeling heaviness, then I want to ask you and say, take a moment to respond to Jesus and say, Lord, am I living in regret? Because regret produces heaviness. But repentance is when we can disconnect ourselves from the identity of something, sin, situation, or circumstance, and identify with what God says about you. He says, you're my son, you're my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. So why don't you lift your hands? Holy Spirit, I'm asking this morning that you would come and lead our hearts thank you that this morning you are showing us that you have taken the emphasis off of right and wrong and sin and you've put the emphasis on relationship with you.
And you have paid the highest price to make sure we can walk in oneness with you. We want to live reconciled with you. God, I thank you that where we have been stuck and tied to situation and circumstance, we allow the gospel to work in our heart so that we can be free, that we can be who you've called us to be. I'm asking that grace would do a work in our hearts and grace would do a work in our community. And Lord, I want to pray for the church 24-7, but the church globally, God, that we would not be a people that disqualify, that hurt, that harm one another, but that we would be people who can forgive as we're forgiven and be the church that you desire, that you would have your reward, that the bride that you are making ready, that you are preparing a bride for your glory, we want to be that. Holy Spirit, would you do that in our hearts? And Lord, I'm praying that if there's pain in people's hearts this morning, Jesus, I just thank you that you are so faithful, that grace doesn't just birth something, grace doesn't just finish something, but grace carries you through the journey. Grace holds you step by step through that whole process. And so I just say thank you, God. You never let us go. You never forsake us. You're with us all the time. Jesus, come and do what only you can do in our hearts. We love you, we honor you, and we bless you. And Lord, I'm asking today that when we go out of this room, that we would respond to you in our own lives. That right now we would respond, but God, even as we leave this place, we would take time to respond to you and to walk with you. I do pray, Lord Jesus, if there is anything I've said that's not in your heart, I thank you, God, that you are so faithful to highlight the things that you wanted to say today. Lord, let the truth of your gospel, the purity and potency of your gospel, fill us and touch our hearts. We love you. We worship you. Thank you that you're holding us right now. Some of us need to feel that the Lord is just holding you. He's covering you this morning. We bless you. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, I've kept you a little long. Thank you. I love you. Bless you. If you need to rush, rush off, you can. If you want to stay and just respond, you can do that. I'll ask the team to put a pad on and um, you can have some coffee. We love you. We'll see you next week. And thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing. Amen.